0: beginning in verse 7, and if you're visiting, I want to say welcome again, and encourages us to see people here that we've never seen before, so it's an honor to see you in our midst. Um, we're, this is a book of the New Testament, First Peter, written by the famous Peter in the New Testament, one of the 12 apostles, and uh, we're later in this series. We should be starting uh, the last chapter two Sundays from now. But we're in 1 Peter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the order of service there. It's uh, it's hard to identify yourself as Christian in any meaningful way if you don't believe the contents of the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. You don't have to ever say them in your worship service. But the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, these are just ancient creeds. And by ancient, I don't mean 1700s. I mean like 300s and 700s, very old. And they just really get at the core of what we would call Christian orthodoxy, that whatever else we might disagree about, we can agree about these things. They are so clear in Scripture. And uh, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are structured on the Trinity. It talks about the Father and then the Son... In the Holy Spirit, the Nicene Creed says more about the Spirit than the Apostles' Creed. But the last thing that's said about Jesus in both creeds is that He will come back. That that's just core Christian orthodoxy is that He will come back. And we've grown accustomed to that claim. We Christians, if if you have, if you are a Christian or you've been around Christians, we've grown accustomed to saying things like. You know, at Christmas we celebrate Advent. Advent means a coming and arrival. But that was the first Advent. We await another Advent. We live between Advents. And this won't be like a spiritual sort of epiphany or some kind of new age. It will be the actual physical reappearance of Jesus Christ on the earth. It's a supernatural claim. Uh, Here at downtown Presbyterian, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. And when we Go over the words that are given in Scripture that remind us what we're doing and why we're doing this. We say that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we say this every week, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until He comes. But He is going to come. If you've grown accustomed to that fact, I'd like you to stop for just a second before we read the text and ask you the question, in light of the fact that he is going to show up unawares, show up unaware one day. How should that affect your life? You know, I'm sure a lot of preachers have framed it this way. If you knew, and we don't, don't. anybody that gives you a rigid timeline about the return of Jesus, no, not even the Mayan calendar of 2012, I don't even think that one's going to pan out. But he is going to come back. And Jesus was very direct, even while he was still here, from the first advent saying, he would tell parables about the second coming, say, you have to be ready. You know, the master or the bridegroom, he'll show up, and it will just seem like you're in the midst of your normal life. You'll be washing a pan, and you'll hear a trumpet. And may for a second think, I just thought I would be doing something else besides washing a pan when Christ came back, but he's back. He's back. If you knew that was going to happen tomorrow, how would it change you? And if you're a follower of Jesus, it may be that where our minds first go is toward people outside the church. Like, if I knew that that was going to happen tomorrow, what I would most need to do is something for those outside the church. Now, please hear me. Our existence as a church has everything to do with those who are not in the church. And I don't mean the church downtown Prez. I mean not in the body of Christ. At some level, we exist because there are still people who don't know Jesus and don't worship Him. But I want you to note that as Peter is drawing to a close, he's actually closing a long section of this letter about what it looks like to live and be different. To be different in a world that may not like your religious beliefs or claims, but cannot help but respect your life. And as he draws to a close, he acknowledges that Christ will return. How should that affect you? And the way he applies it is not so much to people outside the church, but it's to the relationships within. And something I want you to listen for is what he says is important above all. Above all what is important in light of Jesus literally, physically coming back. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we pray, even as we consider very supernatural things, we make a supernatural request That you would keep Satan far from us. That we would submit to you. That we would resist him. That he would flee from us and not distract us. And we would not be deceived by his lies, but be fed by your hand. And we ask this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that I think we need to look at as we come to this text is, is how our passage starts. And it's because there's a phrase at the beginning of our passage that, that could hit you different ways. The, the opening phrase of our text this morning is, The end of all things is at hand. Now, I don't know how that hits you because that, that's the language of... You know, I, I could picture you being up in New York City on a visit, and seeing like the crazy homeless man with a giant sign, you know, that says the end is at hand, or the end is near. Um, Is that what this text is talking about? Part of the reason I think that we hear it that way is when we hear the word end, it means termination. But is that what Peter is talking about? Because he wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, and the termination has not come. And, you know, 1,900 plus years doesn't sound like near. So how is the end near? Think about it this way. God makes, creates Adam and Eve. And He tells them certain things about Himself and His plans. And they fall. And He tells them more about His plans. And then later He comes to Noah... And he tells Noah about his plans. And then later he comes to Abraham. Tells Abraham a, a pretty good bit more about his plans. And then he comes to Moses. And he tells Moses about a lot about his plans. That's a big chunk of the first books of the Old Testament, what he told Moses. And then he comes to David. And he tells David his plans about the monarchy and about Israel and a people and a throne. But then finally, He sends His own Son. And you know, I, I, when we were going through the, the, uh, the worship service, after the confession of sin, I read this assurance of pardon from Hebrews. And I said that Hebrews is written for a very Jewish audience. The way Hebrews starts, just the first verse or two, the writer, we don't know who the writer was. The writer says, you know, in the past, in all these different ways, God spoke. But in these last days, He has spoken by His Son. And that's interesting. The writer doesn't say just in these last days that He has spoken about His Son. He says in the last day, these last days, He has spoken by His Son, by means of His Son, through His Son. And here's what that means. We do not know when Jesus will come back. And I'm sure that with all the military conflict in the world right now, and all the uh, you know, and earthquakes, and tsunamis, uh, and tornadoes, <clears throat> and just the volatility of the news these days, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sure that once again there are a lot of people saying, "Ah, here we go. We're right, we're right at the edge." Jesus said, y- "You will not expect it. You won't see it coming. We don't know when it's going to be, but we do know this." There was still more to learn after Noah. There was still more to learn after Abraham. There was still more to learn after Moses. But now that Jesus has come, there is no next big development. There is no next big development except His return. That in a very real sense, our spiritual condition is like Peter's condition almost two millennia ago. The next big thing that happens is he shows up. And this is not the first time that his return has come up. All right, so Peter says this. You know, he's coming to the end of this big section about what does it look like for God's people, not just to believe different things, but to live in light of those things that they believe, so that a watching world where you're the minority as a Christian... It may not like your beliefs. It may sure not buy into them. But it admires what it sees in you as you flesh out these beliefs. All right, if the end is near for Peter and for us, what does that mean for us? Now, I want to unpack a couple of things. Uh, More briefly, it's, it's how we understand ourselves, how we think about ourselves. But secondly, it is tenaciously committing to each other. Interestingly, Peter's application is not first. Go out there and evangelize and reach the masses. It is, here's how you need to understand yourself. And here's how we need to treat one another. All right, what what about... In light of these things, the end is is near. It's right at hand. How do we understand ourselves? Look in the second part of verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. More than one commentator, when I looked at this, said that those Greek terms in the Greek New Testament, it's contrasting with, with the language of drunkenness, of being sort of out of your head. Now, if you ever have been drunk, and sadly I can claim to be one of those people who has in a former life, you know the difference between how you feel in that existence versus sobriety. Okay, if, if you're sober, you know that there are times where you need to be serious. If you're drunk or if you're under the influence of other substances, it's almost never time to be serious. Um, you're silly when you need to be serious. Or when it's time to be serious, you're just wildly melodramatic instead of just being serious. When you're sober, you know that you're mortal. You know that you can be hurt. You know that certain things are dangerous. If you're not sober, you feel invincible. And you do things that you might not normally do, that aren't safe, that a mortal should not do. What are ways, if I can put it this way, what are ways to be spiritually drunk in how you think about yourself? And it can go to two extremes. One way would be to think that I'm utterly worthless, and the other would be to think I'm really good that I really am spiritually so much more mature than the vast majority of people in this room. Why are both of those crazy? Why are they not sober-minded? What what if you are the person who this morning thinks, I am worthless. What is off about that? Because we just talked about sin. We talked about, you know, and we talk about this regularly. It deserves God's justice. And I'm full of sin. How am I not worthless? When God redeemed the whole cosmos, not just people, but when He redeemed the whole cosmos, He did not become a mountain. He did not become a galaxy. And He could have done it however He wanted. But He became a person. He became a human being because... The nebulae and the galaxies and the mountains and ravines and the oceans are not the pinnacle of creation. We are. That's why it's such a tragic ruin what happened when we fell. It was that the greatest aspect of creation was the very aspect that kicked back for no reason. But you and I are the pinnacle of creation. God doesn't redeem angels. He redeems people. And you're a person and you bear His image. Psalm 8 talks about, What is man that you're mindful of him? Why would you be so patient? Why would you be so patient with mortals like us? It's because God loves human beings. Sinners. And there's that that side. Sober-mindedness would be to understand that and come to grips with it. But the other side is this, is for us to think that we are better than other people in this room. That we are better because I don't do this and I don't do that. And I have friends that misuse this and I don't do that. And I know one guy that's addicted to that and I don't do that. The thing that will take you down spiritually, and the Bible is very clear about this, is pride. And I want to be very direct. If you're sitting here this morning and you think that you are one of the more spiritually advanced people in this room, you are right beside a greased pole to hell. You may not be on it, but you're right beside it. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. That the thing that we need to do in light of the return of Christ is to see both of those... Are forms spiritually speaking, of being on crack. That to understand the gospel is to understand that Christ came to save sinful men and women. And it's to understand that without Him, we will reap the whirlwind. If I stand in my own goodness, if I stand on whatever it is that makes me feel so different and better in this room, it will devastate me. That's to be self-controlled. That's, spiritually speaking, to be sober. Now, that's the first thing. But I want to spend more time on this. To live in light of the fact that the end is near is to tenaciously commit to each other. To commit to other followers of Jesus Christ. When I was praying about this sermon... One thing, I'm not trying to parade my prayer life, but just to tell you, one thing that I prayed in particular is that you would believe two words in this text and not gloss over them. The two words that I want us to believe is when Peter says, above all. Above all. Let's read it again. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins, a multitude of sins, above all. Uh, Here's what that means. There's all these things in the Christian life that followers of Jesus need to do. And we could be here, I mean, bad preaching sometimes leaves you with such a mountain of Christian activities to do that you walk back to your car feeling just devastated because you don't know where to start. I've heard those kinds of sermons and lessons, and it's very likely that you have too. I hope you're not getting them here. But when it says, above all, that we love one another earnestly, here's what that means. It is more important to love another Christian than for you to be thin. It is more important in real ways, not just, yes, yes, Christianity, I love Christians but the real messy Christian man or woman or child that's in our life, it is more important to love him or her than for us to get more organized. It is more important that we love one another deeply than that we protect our investments. It is more important that we absolutely commit to love each other and bear each other's burdens and listen to one another than it is that you finish any Christian book that you might have started. It is more important that you and I and you love one another, not in a fake way that looks like love, but authentically, actually, the way God sees it. It is more important that we love one another than that our children be well-rounded. Above all, love one another earnestly. And then Peter says something interesting. He says, when that happens, that love, it covers sins. Does that mean that if you love me well enough or I love you well enough, that that will forgive you of your sins? That would fly in the face of everything else that we've heard from Peter. It would fly in the face of the whole Bible. That can't be it. What does that mean? That loving one another, it covers sins. Peter is quoting a proverb. It's Proverbs ten twelve. It's a short one. It says this, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all offenses. It means this, even if we're outwardly nice to one another, one way to hate each other, one way for church members to hate each other is to just keep revisiting our offenses with each other. Just revisit them and review them and tell one more person and tell one more person and withdraw from the person who hurt us. And maybe not to talk to everybody in our community group about the person in the community group that did something that rubbed everybody the wrong way, but maybe just tell one more person about it. In Hebrew parallelism, especially in Psalms and Proverbs, sometimes something is said and then it's said another way. Boom, boom. Or it's said negatively and then it's said positively. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all offenses. You know what that means? It means that when a fire of hurt starts, people who commit to one another just throw dirt on it. Don't even blow on it. Don't spray it, Just extinguish it. In my office, I have some Bible verses written on my whiteboard and I wrote those verses up there because I still don't like them. And I think they're going to stay up till I like them. We're working on it. One of the verses on my, on my whiteboard is from Proverbs. It is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. I have a mind like a steel trap for offenses. I have a mind like glue for grudges. It is the glory of a man. It, and that's going to be important at the end of this text. It is glory for us to let it stop with us. How do you demonstrate that kind of love? A couple of things that Peter talks about. The first is hospitality. Now, he is saying this to all Christians. So this is not just the person with the awesome home, you know, that has like a kitchen that's by itself a thousand square feet... And has just been redone, and everything is marble. And, and it's, it, you know, you could come in and do a shoot for Southern Living right now. Right now, you could come in and do a shoot. This is all believers. Verse 9 show hospitality to one another. And here's the kicker what's the last part? Without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. Show hospitality in such a way. That when the people are out the door, you are not kind of doing like the Scarlet O'Hara. Man, that was hard. And I'm so good to have done that. In Peter's context, you know, it's easy to remember, it's easy to forget this. The people reading this letter, there are no church buildings. There are no sanctuaries. They're in, you know, non-Christian hostile territory. Where do they meet when they come together? In homes. Well, you know, if you were the person who was having the Christian worship service in your home, you never know who might be there. You might let someone come into your home, and that might be the person who's going to rat you out. And so if you've been approached about, could we meet at your home to worship, maybe the impulse would be to say... I don't know about that. I have a four-year-old, and I just... I don't want soldiers surrounding the... I mean, I love Jesus. I'm loving the worship. But I I just... we're, We're in a season of life where I don't know if that makes sense. Peter says, look, show hospitality to one another. And you let God work that out. And as we said early on in this series, even though there's lots of churches in Greenville... And there's lots of churches in the downtown. We are still exiles. This is not our home. And we are still strangers. And one way that it is powerful to be ministered to as an exile or a stranger, if you actually think that is what you are, is to be brought into a home. And for someone not to put on the dog and not to just put out all the fine china and do it to the nines, is just to bring you into their home and sit you at their table and maybe just talk about the mundane and talk about just chit-chat stuff. But at some point to say to you, as another exile, you know, honey, you are not crazy. We are not crazy. Uh, your co-workers may think you are a prude or weird or rigid or stilted or medieval or repressive or Whatever. It's not that we're better than them. You're free. Christ came. Christ died. Christ rose. Christ will come again. And you cannot text that. I mean, you can say that over Facebook, but it just—it does not hit you like it does sitting around a table with faces and food and drink. When is the last time you had another... Let me back up. This is not an indiscriminate question. If you are a member of this church, when is the last time you had another member of this church who is not your relative and who is not already a good friend into your home? Has it been a year? No one's monitoring this except God. But I'm not. And my point is not to scold you, because scolding won't motivate you. What I want you to see is that something's going on. Something's going on where you're drunk. You're drunk in one, let's go back. You're drunk in one of two ways. You either think that you are so worthless that your home and your hospitality has nothing to offer, that is crazy talk. I had a counselor tell me in a staff training session, this is a PhD, knows this stuff, been a counselor for decades. He said that almost an embarrassing amount of research demonstrates that a a next-door neighbor who will bring you into, into their home and have a cup of coffee with you and listen to you and be sympathetic and not rush you is almost as effective as a trained therapist. If not as or more. Yes, you have something to offer. If you are single and you have an apartment that you rent and you feel like it's not a cool place, it's not like a home, it's not like a real house with family and your own stuff, do not listen to the lie that you cannot help. It would be the love of God for you to bring a brother or sister into your home probably works better the brothers with the brothers and the sisters with the sisters can get kind of funky if you, you know you know what I mean insert all qualifiers here but you could be drunk in the other way the other way would be to feel like well we would never say it this way but deep down to feel like I'll worship with them I don't really want to get to know them and what if God had said that to us I'll cleanse them. I don't want to spend time with you. And it says at the end of Romans, he has welcomed us. Christ has welcomed us. And people feel that when you welcome them, the more you feel like somebody that should have been banished, but who experienced welcome, it'll free you up to welcome others. If we feel like our home is our home. You know what we're doing? We're doing what I watched college students do in campus ministry, where the parents bought them the car, and the parents bought the insurance and paid for the insurance, and the parents gave them a credit card for gas and oil and tire changes and stuff like that, and the student feels like, this car is mine. At one level it is because they're the stewards of it, but every facet of the experience of using that car was granted. I know our homes. They feel like our homes. It feels like it's my home and my door to close on a noisy world and it's my food. Dang it. Hypothetically, I've heard that people feel that way. (laughs) The house was granted The resources to pay the mortgage or the rent was granted. 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 We are stewards. The other thing is the use of of gifts. I'm going to be brief. Verse 10. This is encouraging if you're a Christian who doesn't feel like you have much value as each, each what? Each believer. This is a letter addressed not to human beings in general. It's beneficial to all human beings, but the letter's addressed to Christians. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What do the gifts look like? Well, there's kind of talking gifts. And they're serving gifts, verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. If you are a follower of Christ, not only from this passage, but we know it from other passages. 1 Corinthians 12 is an important one. You have at least one God-given tool in your toolbox And it's not just for you. And the world can be blessed by it, but it's primarily for the body of Christ. I've told, I'm not going to embarrass this person, but I embarrass, I said embarrass, embarrass this person. One of you who works with children's Sunday school, I listened to you teach children. And it was evident that you're not just good at it. And I told you this. It was evident to me that God has gifted you to do it. It wasn't just good, it was great. It was almost like ability that's bigger than the person. In a membership interview just a few days ago, I was meeting with a couple, and the wife was talking about the community group that she and her husband have already been visiting. And she said, when I go into this home... I feel the love of God. That's not just ability to cook, or to clean up, or to welcome, or email everybody about getting together, or to smile, or to hug. It can include all those things. But it's a God-given gift that is bigger than yourself. One way that we commit to each other is to figure out what is the gift. What are the gifts? And to use them for each other. One person said it this way, gifts are discovered in service. We need to try a lot of different things. When I tell you that I never thought that my future would hold public speaking, you better believe it. If you could hear my first attempts at public speaking, not that they're awesome now, but they were an abomination at the beginning. loathsome. I want to exhort you to use the gifts that you've been given. Some of you, like the rest of us, are learning how to serve, but you have this gift to speak encouragement. When you encourage people, it's like Jesus is putting a hand on someone's shoulder and saying, you are going to be okay because you're not God. God is God, and He has you, so keep going. The end is near. The end is near. Be sober-minded, be self-controlled, but above all, let's love one another earnestly. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, it comes naturally to us to just be absorbed with ourselves. It just feels like it's in the very fabric of the way we structure our lives, what we like and don't like, what we gravitate toward. What we ask, oh Lord, is that because Christ has come, and He's come because You love sinners, that the way that you've dealt with us, welcoming us in, we would welcome one another in. Father, give us a body that is not just a worship service, but knit downtown Presbyterian Church together as a family and as the body of Christ. Connect us in deeds of love and mercy to the greater body of Christ in the downtown and in Greenville. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.